following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, let's keep rolling, keep fanning yourselves, go out and get some air if you need to. In the course of things, I, uh, I was down yesterday at uh, Festival One, which is this big uh, music festival down in Mystery Creek, and I was doing a seminar down there, Graham Burt, who's part of our church here, oversees Festival One, and he asked me to do this seminar, and so I thought that I would do the same talk this morning as I did down there yesterday. He got me to do the seminar in this incredibly hot room, uh, even hotter than this this dark black room down there. So I wasn't overly optimistic about the number of people that would come because basically they had a choice between going and listening to a bunch of bands uh, or chilling out in the marketplace or going and listening to a seminar on the Bible. So I thought this is not going to get a whole lot of people. But there were a few that showed up, maybe out of pity, I don't know, a few that came and listened. And so that was fun. So I thought, so if you, yesterday, if you happened to be at Festival One and you were at that seminar and you're here this morning, that's really bad luck for you. I'm sorry about that. You are going to get a rerun. You're going to get a repeat, but I will um, I'll come up to me afterwards and I'll preach a special sermon just for you, a, a unique one. But uh, Graham had asked me to speak on, um, to do the seminar yesterday on one specific verse in the Bible. He was very particular with what he wanted. He said, I want you to speak on John 14 verse 9, where Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, can you unpack that? in half an hour, and there was all these other seminars going on at the same time. So that's what, that's what I dived into. That's what we're going to dive into this morning uh, and just explore a little bit about that, which will take us into some interesting kind of territory and maybe raise some interesting issues for us. Uh, so if you do have a Bible, turn over there. It is just going to be basically that one passage uh, today, although we'll look at another one along the way as well. But let me just set this up uh, with a bit of a story. Uh, a, few, a number of years ago, there was a guy who used to come to our church, doesn't anymore, and he came up to me one day wanting to be baptized. So we had a conversation about this, and he said, I'm really keen to be baptized, but I only want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. I don't want to be baptized in the name of the Father. I don't want to be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. I only want to be baptized in Jesus' name. So I thought, okay, let's hold on here, put the brakes on, and let's just have a conversation about this. So we met up for lunch and had a talk about it, and I... I I tried to talk him through the fact that Jesus gave us some fairly clear guidelines for how we do baptisms and baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, but he, he wasn't budging. He, he said, no, for him, he said the main, the main person is Jesus. The one who matters is Jesus. And he wasn't too keen on the Father or the Holy Spirit. He said, really, they're just other names for Jesus. They're sort of other identities for Jesus. They're like other masks that Jesus would wear. But the main event is Jesus. So he clearly loved Jesus. He was all about Jesus. But he's not so big on the Father or the Holy Spirit. So that left me with a bit of a quandary as to what to do in that situation. And I wonder what you would have done uh, if, you'd, if you'd had that choice of whether to baptize someone or not on the, in those circumstances. And I wrestled with that. And in the end, I, I felt that I couldn't do it. So that might lose me some points in your books, I don't know. But I felt like I couldn't do that. I felt like there was a bit more at stake than just names and titles and words. I felt like there was... Something quite important about our faith, something quite important about his own relationship with God that was kind of being undermined by an unwillingness to be baptized in the name of Father and Son and Spirit. And you know how you look back on conversations and you wish that you'd 
said this or done this or whatever if, you, if you'd been able to have the time again. One of the things I wish I'd said to him is go and read the Gospel of John because I think that would have been helpful to our conversation because John, the Gospel of John, and you know this if you track through the series we did in John a couple of years ago, the Gospel of John has this wonderful way of bringing out the, who Jesus is, this beautiful, exalted portrait of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God. That's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And yet at the same time, you see these relationships in John that Jesus has with the Father uh, and with the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, as distinct persons. So you have the centrality of Jesus, and yet Jesus is relating to the Father and he's relating to the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to get into today, particularly this relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus and the God that he called Father and encourages us to call Father. And the way that Jesus reveals that God to us. So, John 14.9 is where we're going to be. Uh, let me just give you the context of this particular verse, the statement that Jesus makes. This is all happening on the, on the night before Jesus dies. Okay, that's, that's where we are in the chronology of Jesus' life. The night before Jesus dies, he's just shared the Last Supper with his disciples, this Passover kind of meal. They've just had that meal. And then Jesus begins this long conversation with his disciples. It spans several chapters in the Gospel of John. They go into all sorts of topics and subjects. Uh, and there's this conversation that happens before Jesus then goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's betrayed by Judas and his trials begin and so on. So as Jesus is talking to his disciples here on the night before he dies, he starts talking about the Father. He starts talking about God the Father. And Jesus is always talking about the Father. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father 165 times. God's only called Father 15 times in the Old Testament. But you get to the New Testament, and in the Gospels alone, Jesus refers to God as Father 165 times. That is his preferred way of referring to God. And he talks about my Father, this, and our Father, you know, the Lord's Prayer. He invites us to call God Father, and my Heavenly Father, and I do the will of my Father, and I do what pleases the Father. He's always talking about the Father. And so here he is having this conversation after dinner with his disciples, and again he drifts into talking about the Father, how he's going to return to the Father, and how he is the way to the Father. Jesus talks about no one can come to the Father except through me. That's where that verse pops up. And then one of his disciples, Philip, pipes up and says, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. In other words, stop, stop talking about the Father all the time and just show us the Father. Show us who you're talking about, Jesus. And Jesus responds to Philip with these words. We'll pick it up in verse 9. He says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I'd been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Now that's a really important statement that Jesus makes for many reasons, one of which is this is one of two places, only two places in the gospel, where Jesus clearly, unambiguously claims to be God. A lot of the time in the gospels, Jesus will talk about how he's come from the Father, how, he, how he's doing the work of the Father, he does what pleases the Father, but he's claiming more than that here. He's going beyond that. He's not just claiming to be a spokesperson for God. He's not just claiming to be sent by God. In other words, Jesus is claiming more than a Messiah-type figure would claim. 
to be anointed and sent by God. He's claiming even more than a prophet-type figure would claim to be speaking on behalf of God. Jesus is claiming to be the living embodiment of Israel's God, the living embodiment of Yahweh, the God we read about in the Old Testament, the God that disciples like Philip would have worshipped and prayed to. Jesus is saying, I am that God. I am in the Father. He is in me. I and the Father are one. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is claiming here clearly to be sharing in the identity of God, in the being of God himself, in the essence, in the substance, and the life of God. This is a claim to deity. This is a claim to divinity. And that's important because sometimes there is a little theory that goes around and it's popularized from time to time. Last time it was popularized was when the movie The Da Vinci Code came out. This theory that Jesus never really claimed to be divine, never really claimed to be God during his own lifetime. That he was a teacher or a prophet or a sage or whatever, Messiah, but he never really claimed to be God. And the theory is, this was the premise of The Da Vinci Code, that centuries later, in the 4th century, a bunch of bishops got together, they got all overexcited, and they decided that Jesus was divine. And they kind of deified him at that stage and put it in a creed. But that didn't really reflect who Jesus actually was and what Jesus actually said and did during his own lifetime. So that, that theory kind of gets reheated from time to time various ways, and it's got a lot of popular appeal. But it doesn't square with the biblical evidence because you have in John these at least two times here and back in John 9 where Jesus himself, by his own lips, says that he is God. He makes this claim to be equal with the Father, to share in the identity of God. He claims more than just being a prophet or a Messiah. He is claiming here to be God. So you have this statement in the first century, in the life of Jesus, from his own lips, that he is divine, that he is God. It's not something that was invented by subsequent centuries of Christians down the track. So it's important that we, that we know that and understand that and can defend that if need be. So the question then that I want to look at here on the, on the back of that, if Jesus is God, if Jesus shares in the identity of the Father, if, if to see Jesus is to see the Father, then what does Jesus reveal about the Father? How does Jesus reveal God to us? How does this happen? In what way? And to get at that, I want to look a little bit more broadly at the context in which this conversation takes place. This is a conversation I mentioned Jesus is having with his disciples on the night before he dies. Now, we know that meal that Jesus has just had with his disciples, the reason that this is all famous is because that's the time and the place when Jesus instituted the sacrament of communion. It's in this context that Jesus took the bread and the cup and he, he established that meal, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you call it. Uh, and that's why we carry that tradition on today. That's why we do this every week at Shaw. That's what this meal, the Last Supper, is famous for. But if you read John, he doesn't mention that. John, John never mentions communion. He never mentions that part of the meal. If you only had the Gospel of John, of all the books in the Bible, we would never celebrate communion because it's not there. John's interested in something else that happened at that meal. He's interested in something else that Jesus did after that dinner. Now flick back one chapter to John 13. I'll show you what it is. And this is where Jesus revealed, one of the places Jesus reveals the Father to us. 
John 13, in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So there is this lofty statement of Jesus' identity. Not quite as lofty as what you find in John 14, but it's getting close. Jesus shares all the power of God. He has this home with God in heaven. He's returning to God after his earthly life. He has all the delegated authority over heaven and over earth on God's behalf. He shares the privilege and the position of God himself. He has this incredible relationship and closeness to the Father. So a high statement of Christology, of Jesus' identity here. And yet, then look in the next verse, in verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. So there you've got exactly the opposite. You've got this statement of serving. You've got a statement where Jesus takes the absolute lowest possible role on the social ladder. Usually that act of washing the feet of the guests, it would be done by a common servant, a slave in the house. If there was one, they would wash the feet of the guests as they arrived. Obviously there was no servant there. And none of the other disciples, interestingly, felt that it was fitting of them to take that kind of role. So no one did it. So they just ended up with smelly feet. And they all just sat around and had dinner. And then after dinner, Jesus takes upon himself that role. He basically makes himself a household slave. He makes himself into a household servant, and he does this role which would have been considered the, the absolute bottom-tier job on the entire social hierarchy. So these two verses, just step back and look at this, verse 3 and verse 4. In verse 3, you have the statement where Jesus is at the top of the whole hierarchy of the universe. He is sharing in the power of God, sharing in the position of God, sharing in this proximity to God the Father. And then you have the statement immediately following it where Jesus is at the bottom of the whole hierarchy. He's serving. He is lowly. He's a slave. Two contrasting statements. And then look at the word that connects them at the beginning of verse 4, in English at least, the word so. Sometimes the smallest words in the Bible are the most important. That word so is loaded with meaning because it connects these two things in a particular way. So means that one thing results from another. This is true. So, therefore this one thing flows from another. In other words, Jesus shares in the power and the position and the privilege of God. So he serves. So he becomes a slave. You might expect that the word but would be in there. That, that would probably sound more normal to our ears. If it said something like Jesus shares in all the power of God and the privilege and the position of God, but he serves. Because then there would be a contradiction. And that kind of sounds like there should be. Jesus is God, and yet he serves. Jesus is God, but in spite of that, he serves. John doesn't use any of those words. He uses the word so. And what he's saying is that Jesus is God, and therefore the natural outworking of that is that he serves. Jesus shares in the power and the privilege and the position of deity and therefore the result of that is that he would lower himself to the point 
of a servant. In other words, the truth of this passage is that the foot washing is not something Jesus did in spite of being God. It's something Jesus did because he was God. Do you catch it? This is something Jesus did precisely because he was God. This flows from his identity with God, which means that, uh, that act of serving, this humble act of lowly foot washing, it doesn't just tell you something about Jesus. It shows the Father. If this is something Jesus did because he was God and was with the Father, this takes us to the heart of God. This is When you see Jesus foot washing, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When you see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, you know what you're seeing? Not just Jesus, you're seeing the Father. You are getting a glimpse into the character and the nature of the Father, God the Father himself. And what do we see in that act? We see that the heart of the Father is a heart of self-giving love. That kind of love that sacrifices itself for the other, this kind of self-lowering, this self-emptying, self-debasing, self-condescending, self-sacrificing kind of love, this kind of love that's willing to be poured out for the sake of the other, that's willing to lay its own life down for the sake of others, a love that's willing to be spent on behalf of others, that's willing to be lowly, that's willing to be humble, that's willing to be open, a love that's willing to completely give itself away in order to put the needs of others, the welfare of others, the flourishing of others ahead of itself. That is a love that characterizes not only Jesus, it characterizes God himself, characterizes the Father. In fact, you can go further, you can go a step back and say this is not just a love that characterizes God the Father that Jesus is revealing. This is a love that we find within God's own being. Before God loves us, he shares this love within himself between Father and Son and Spirit. That's ultimately where this love originates. The love that Jesus reveals, it originates within God. There is this love that is constantly flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what we call the Trinity. And the Trinity is a community of love flowing back and forth between Father and Son and Spirit. This pure, uncontaminated, undiluted love where Father and Son and Spirit are giving themselves to each other pouring themselves out for each other, pouring themselves into one another in this continual dance of love that's been going on from eternity past. It will go on into eternity future. That's why when John comes to write his letters later on in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he makes that simple statement there. God is love. God is love. And he means by that not just that God is loving towards you or acts in love towards us, but that within his own being, God is characterized by love. By the love that is being given and received between Father and Son and Spirit. The love within the Trinity itself. That doesn't mean God's just a force of love. You can't just say, well, God is just this kind of impersonal force like Star Wars. He's just this force, this kind of love. No, God is personal. He's real. He's a personal being, but his nature is love. His character is love. At the heart of the Father, there is this beautiful, pure love. And it's flowing all the time between Father and Son and Spirit. So what Jesus is showing, what happens when you take one of the members of the Trinity, the Son, and you place him on earth, the perfect representation of God, perfect representation of the Father, and then you put the Son, Jesus, in a dusty, hot room like this one, but in Palestine, on a hot night with a bunch of guys with smelly, sweaty feet. What is he going to do? He's going to wash some feet. 
And what I want you to see is that is the most natural expression of the love of God. If the Son is the perfect representation of the Father, and if the heart of the Father is self-giving love, then we should expect Jesus to wash some feet, even though it seems so unbecoming. It's the perfect expression of the selfless love that's at the heart of God. To see Jesus is to see the Father. So to see Jesus serving humbly, lovingly, sacrificing his interests for others is to see God, to see the Father, to see Father and Son and Spirit. Now, this takes us to the cross, and I want to just touch on the cross here because this is where it all leads to the death of Jesus. When Jesus makes this statement, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it's all ultimately pointing to the cross because that is where we see this all fulfilled. This is where we see the fullest revelation of who God is. Most of the time, when you and I think about the cross, you think about the death of Jesus, we usually understand it as a time of salvation, a time when God saves us. And it is that. It certainly is that. The cross is the time when God provided forgiveness for us, when he made atonement for us, when he made reconciliation possible for us with him. But the cross is more than just salvation. When you look at the cross, it is also an act of revelation. It's an act that reveals who God is. If we take Jesus at his word, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, then to see the cross is to see something of the Father, right? Not that the Father suffered, that's quite important. It was the unique place of the Son to suffer. But when you, if you were one of the bystanders that Friday afternoon, looking at that man suffering, bleeding, dying on the cross, you were seeing a revelation of God the Father. Not just Jesus, but you're getting a glimpse of God the Father. And what you're seeing is that same self-giving love taken to its extremity taken to its absolute limit. It's like the song says, we're going to sing in a moment, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You see the depth of the Father's love on the cross and you see this revelation of just how much he loves us. The cross is an expression of the love of God taken to its furthest possible extent so you could say and this might sound strange to say in one sense when you look at the cross it's the most unnatural thing god ever could have experienced you think of all the majesty and the power and the glory and the sovereignty of god the cross is the most unnatural thing but in another sense from the perspective of god's self-giving love towards us you could say the cross is the most natural thing for God to experience. In a strange way, in a strange paradoxical kind of way, the cross is the most natural, pure, full expression of the love of the Father. That if God is God and his heart is self-giving love and he incarnates himself on earth as a man, we should expect the cross. It's the perfect revelation of the love of God. There's a word for this. One of my favorite authors, a guy called Michael Gorman, he came up with a word that describes the kind of love you see on the cross, the love of Jesus, the love of the Father. He calls it cruciform love. Cruciform love. In other words, love in the form of the cross. Love that is shaped like a cross. And he says that because of the cross, love is forever defined by the cross now. It is the ultimate demonstration 
of love, the love of God and any love that we might have for each other. So you read, you know, where we read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, not self-seeking, not, even, not easily angered. The only reason that's true and even possible for human beings because ultimately that's defined on the cross. We see the patience and the kindness and the long-suffering of God at the cross. The cross forever defines love. It defines the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit. And that love has now been poured out into our hearts. Those of us who know Jesus, those of us who are Christians, we've received this love now into our hearts, the self-giving, cruciform love of God. So what that means, let me just try and ground this now in our worlds and our lives. It means that if you're a Christian, you are actually being shaped now by the same kind of love. God's working in you. He's shaping you along the lines of the same cruciform kind of love. Love shaped like a cross. And he's calling you to walk in the way of Jesus, to walk in the way of cruciform love by the power of the Holy Spirit. In our lives, in everyday ways, ordinary ways, ordinary conversations, we're called now to the way of cruciform love because we are being formed into the image of Jesus. And and his very nature was cruciform love. He showed us the nature of the Father whose very heart was cruciform love. So that ought to be our heart as well. And that's a love that is willing to give itself away on behalf of others to put the needs and the interests in the other, of, of the other ahead of ourselves. to say it's not, it's not about my rights, what, what I feel entitled to, what I feel I'm owed, what I feel my, my, my entitlements are in this moment, but it is about the good of the others. I want to seek the interests of another above myself. I want to put this person's needs, this person's interests ahead of my own. I'm willing to be lower if it means this other person can be higher. I'm willing to lift this person up even if it means I'm poured out in the process. That's cruciform love. It's a self-giving kind of love that we're called to as Christians. Let me just give you one example of this kind of love in action. Uh, back in 2012, the London Olympics, uh, in the lead-up to the Olympics, the men's, the New Zealand men's weightlifting team were competing at the Oceania Champs for a spot at the Olympics. And the way that it works, I understand, weightlifting is obviously an individual sport. There's one person standing on the platform lifting. But the nature of the tournament is that the team needs the collective points. So you've got to pull the points of each athlete and then the team with the the most amount of points can send their highest ranked athlete as a nominee to the Olympics. There was a guy in the New Zealand team called Tevita Nalu. A few days before the uh, Oceania Champs began, he tore his quad muscle in training. And it basically meant for him there was no hope of getting to the Olympics anymore. There's no way he was going to be able to lift enough to get to the Olympics. But the double blow for the New Zealand team is that then he wasn't likely to be able to contribute enough points to the team for anyone from New Zealand to go on and get the nomination. So Tavita talks about how the day after his injury, the night, he just never stopped talking, never stopped thinking about his team and his teammates. And the next day he decided to give it a go anyway. He decided to try a lift. So he took to the platform and in a lot of pain, he managed to lift and he got 123 kgs. It's more than any of us will probably ever lift. Uh, But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the men's team to get enough points. And in the process, he tore his quad muscle even more and the doctor told him to stop and it all looked like New Zealand's chances were over. But then Tavita wanted one more go. He decided to have one more shot and he was entitled to by the rules of the competition. So he took to the platform one more time, one last time, basically on one leg, attempted a lift and he got 157 kgs. Huge lift and it was just enough to get the men's team the title, to send the highest-ranked New Zealand member, Richard Patterson, to the Olympics. 
And so, in the London Olympics, when Richard Patterson took to the platform, it was purely because of the selfless sacrifice of Tavita Nalu, who knew there was no chance in it for him. He knew that he was never going to make it to the Olympics, but he made this, he spent himself, he poured himself out for the sake of his teammates. And I understand that Tavita's a Christian, and if that's true, then this is more than just an act of good sportsmanship, it's more than just an act of sacrifice. This is an act of cruciform love. It's love in the shape of a cross. It's love that reflects the heart of the Father. It's a love that's actually willing to be lowered and emptied for the sake of someone else. And this is what we're called to in all kinds of ways, in, in small ways as well as big ways. Probably none of us are ever going to be called to lift 157 kgs. But just in the course of life, there are opportunities all around you every day in the relationships you have among family, relationships you have in friendship circles, relationships you have with neighbors, and just with people who come across your path randomly for no reason at all to demonstrate, to embody this kind of self-giving love through extending kindness, through encouraging someone, through taking a moment to engage someone you otherwise might not in conversation, to care for someone, sending a text, just being present with someone, praying for someone, sharing your faith with someone, blessing someone in some way. You are in some small way walking in the way of Jesus, expressing cruciform love. And so what's happening when we do that? Even the smallest little thing, smallest example of laying down my rights for the sake of blessing someone else. We should be able to say, as Christians, daunting though it is, to see me is to see the Father. Not because we're Jesus, and certainly not because we have his perfection, but we are little Christs. That's what Christian means. We're little Christs. And so we are called to embody this in our lives. I think that's why Paul makes that extraordinary statement in his, in his epistles. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. He's not claiming perfection either, but he's saying in some way, in some dim but visible way, to see my life should be to see the Father. If you can see in me, in my words, in my actions, in my deeds towards other people, something of this cruciform love, something of this self-giving love, then to see me is to see Jesus, and to see Jesus is to see the Father. So there's a challenge for us as individuals. Can we say, to see my life is to dimly, imperfectly, brokenly, but visibly see the love of the Father. And as a community, as a faith community, what a great prayer for us to pray that we would, we would become that kind of church where, where we could say, to look at us, to see our church, is to see something of the Father. That we'd be a living embodiment of that cruciform love in our actions and reactions and interactions with one another, in our relationships with one another. That we would be a living witness to the heart of the Father. And when outsiders look into our community and the way we are towards one another, they would see a love, a selfless, self-giving, cruciform love that takes them to Jesus and ultimately takes them to the love that resides at the very heart of the Father. May it be true for us. May it be true for our church, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your deep love. And Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. God, it's amazing to think that it was your will to cause your own son to suffer. And Isaiah tells us it was your will that he should suffer, that he should be bruised and beaten like that. God, even though you love him so dearly, you were willing to hand him over 
that we could be free, that we could know you. God, keep our eyes fixed on that cruciform love that we see at the cross. And in our own lives, God, show us the opportunities that we have in small little ways with the people around us to show that kind of serving, self-giving, cruciform love to one another, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be conformed to your image. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.